Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Good morning. My name is Joel, and I have the, uh, the privilege of getting to share this morning alongside my wife, Morgan, and uh, the, the, we've been going through a series. Oh, you know what, real quick, by the way, before I get into it, uh, when you guys walked in, maybe you uh, noticed that you were seated by an usher, and that may have been new to you, but the reason we're doing that is because uh, if you look around, the seats are filling up, and we are growing, and if you look at the numbers of the people that are coming on Sunday mornings, we are growing, and so rather than pushing this thing all the way back to the wall or buying hundreds of new chairs, we're just trying to, uh, whoa. We're just trying to fill, uh, fill the front seats and maximize this space before we make any, uh, a ton of new changes. So as you come in, you're just going to start to experience that every single week. There's going to be an usher at each end of the aisle, and they're going to seat you, and, and uh, you'll get used to it soon enough. So when I, uh, when I wanted to marry Morgan, I knew right away that I wanted to marry her. And a few months after dating her, I figured, you know what, I probably should put a ring on it. And... Uh, and so I felt like the first step in that was going and talking to her dad. And so I, I felt like I should ask for the blessing of her, her dad. And so I met uh, Morgan's dad uh, at a bowling alley. I know, right? And uh, we were at a bowling event for Morgan's brother. And I sat next to him. And, and it, actually, her mom ended up being there as well. Didn't know that was going to happen, but it did. And, uh, and, and the, when, this morning, we're going to talk about the, uh, the permanency of marriage, the significance of the commitment that you're making when you marry someone. And, uh, and I had heard stories where the father, the future father-in-law had, you know, a list of 25 questions and a three-hour conversation. Maybe that was your experience. But Morgan's dad is a man of few but very uh, carefully thought-out words. And I said, uh, Mr. Myers, I'd just like you to know that I love your daughter and I want to marry her. Would that be something you'd be okay with? And I knew what he said was going to be good because I knew it had been thought through. And like I said, he's a man of few words. And he said, I think it'd be okay with that. And, uh, but I got one thing to say. This is forever. You can't get out of it. Like, it's, it's a done deal for the rest of your life. And I said, yes, sir. And... Uh, and I just, from that moment, I think, I always knew that. And I, 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 my parents have a great marriage, but in that moment, I was like, man, I was just hit there with the significance of the commitment that I was making. So Morgan and I get to kind of wrap up this series called SOS, uh, Relational Help from the, the Book of Song of Solomon. And honestly, as we have prepared, I have felt so unbelievably unqualified to do this because uh, I was trying to think of an example of how I felt this whole process went, and I remembered as a kid, I grew up in Africa, and as a kid, uh, we, would, we would pour the cereal in our bowl, and then we would pour some powdered milk into our cereal, and then we were instructed by our parents not to eat the cereal for about 20 seconds because we had to let the bugs give, we had to give them about 20 seconds to rise to the top with the milk, literally. You never knew when the bugs got into the, got into the cereal, and so you had to pour the milk first. And as Morgan, maybe I'm the cereal, and she's the milk, and as, as we met together on this, it was so interesting, like, the bugs kind of rose, and it was like, man, like, when you start talking about marriage, you just, I just realized, like, how not great at it I am, 
And, uh, and we just, I feel like we got in like 20 fights this week about this or something. I don't know. I just feel like the Lord was, uh, Satan was trying to get at me and, and make me feel unqualified to do this. And in reality, I am. And we've only been married for three years. And so for me to stand up here and say, hey, listen from my experience, that would be so foolish because we don't even have all that much experience to offer. And so rather than teach from experience, we're going to teach from the Bible. Is that all right with you guys? Yeah? We're going to teach from this thing, and the Lord's going to illuminate truth this morning. And uh, before we get going too fast, too, I just need you to know that I married the greatest woman in the world who is spirit-led, and uh, we might joke a little bit with one another this morning, uh, but I need you to know that from the bottom of our hearts, we do love each other, and... uh, and it's, it really is an honor just to get to teach alongside of her this morning, and we're lucky. We're lucky to get to hear from you. So take us away. Yeah, I'm going to just, I'm going to start us off with our passage today. We're in Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7. So if you did not bring a Bible, there is one in the seat underneath of you or in front of you. And let's read it together. Again, Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7. It says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes our flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love... All the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. That's some really intense stuff. Um, I read that and I kind of understand, like, just as much as it is intense. I had those feelings and those emotions when I first met Joel. We met four and a half years ago at a camp up in Vermilion, Ohio called Beulah Beach. And I had never previously dated or had a boyfriend. And somehow I had attracted the attention of the Joel trainer, and it was a really big deal. And I will never forget one of his very first dates that he took me on. We sat at a train station, actually, on a park bench and watched the trains, like, fly by and talked into the late night. And I remember at one point he came over and he, like, brushed the hair out of my eye. And I promise you, I thought my heart was going to explode. Like, I had those feelings and that emotion. Um, and when we first started dating again, he had the idea of, Hey, let's start a journal together. And, um, we did a long distance relationship. So he was like, let's start a journal. We can write letters back and forth to one another. Of course, I thought that was a great idea. So I pulled out that journal and was kind of rereading it the last couple of weeks to go through just what my thoughts, emotions, and feelings were as, Oh, and we already have one up there as, um, As I was in that season of life, Um, we'll start with one of Joel's. Wait on the second one of Joel's. Uh, This was Joel. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. He wrote this for me. Can we go Christmas caroling together, please? Uh, We were like madly in love with each other and doing corny things like facing the whole pictures and asking one another to go caroling. Um, I'm going to read you guys some of the things that I wrote that are not completely embarrassing, but I also realize that this is still fairly embarrassing. So maybe just laugh with me. Um, Oh, and here's the second one. We'll start with Joel's, I guess, first. This is Joel's second one. 
It says, if you can read it, here's a game I love and truly believe in. It says, true love, Morgan Myers and Joel Trainer. According to this, we had a 97% chance that we will be together forever. And then it says, woohoo. <laughs> Um, I kid you not, this is Joel's handwriting. It took me a few minutes to actually figure out, like, the game that he was playing and how he configured it. You can ask me later if you want to play it with your spouse or significant other. Um, I didn't show him these before we got up here, so I wanted him to be surprised with me. Here are a couple of things that I wrote. I didn't pull the slides. Um, here's something I said. It said... I was planning on writing this a little later, but I just have a few things I wanted to write down now. One, you just called me, and it never ceases to make me giddy excited to see your name show up on the phone. (laughs) Two, I'm sitting here thinking about how you're my boyfriend, and I'm smiling like a fool in Panera. Good thing there's pretty much no one here at this point. Smiley face. (laughs) End quote. Um, Here's the second one. This is Joel writing to me. He says, P.S., When do I get to hold your hands? Ever? Maybe? And I wrote, well, of course. You're the one that said we should probably wait until we're actually dating, which I agree with. I'm just really excited for that day and to hold your hands. I feel like a little immature homeschooler saying this, but you're going to be the first guy I've ever really held hands with, and I just cannot wait, end quote. Um, Don't take offense to the homeschool comment. That was 21-year-old Morgan who is madly in love and saying ridiculous things. But we were that couple, as is evidenced by these slides and some of those comments, we were that couple that made people feel uncomfortable around us and were just like giddy and in love. And we were that Song of Solomon couple. I mean, you read this and they're saying things like, for love is strong as death, flashes My love is our flashes of flashes of fire. Many waters cannot quench my love. And we read that, and I just shared with you guys how I can understand that because that was part of our relationship. But if I'm being really honest with you this morning, as I would hope that I could be up here, like I don't think that that's necessarily my reality every day. I read that. And it it causes me to pause and stop and maybe even get worried and concerned because I read that and I'm like, wow, those, that couple, they had a lot of passion in their relationship. They really loved one another, right? But, but I don't every day wake up next to my husband and think, man, many waters cannot quench my love for him. Like, it just is not a reality. We're, we're three years in, just three years in, and I don't have those really strong emotions and feelings that I read about in this Song of Solomon passage. And so I have to stop and I have to question and say, is something wrong? Like, did we fall out of love? What's going on here? And and maybe some of you guys too are sitting here thinking, yeah, I can identify with that. I read that passage and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I don't feel those things quite as much. Maybe I did once, but but I don't now. And maybe you're single and you're sitting here and thinking that's exactly why I'm not dating somebody or that's exactly why I'm not married. Because I've seen those married couples, right, that they start off being in love and then very much are not in love three, five, ten years in. So, nah, I don't want that. It can be a little disconcerting at times 
And maybe even some of you are sitting here, and I think Joel shared our title of Help, I Want Out. And maybe there are some of you that are in here, and if you're honest with yourself, you're thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I'm feeling, Help, I Want Out. And you probably didn't think you were going to say that when you got married, if I'm guessing, right? I mean, you don't get into something if you're thinking that it's going to end like that. And, uh, but, but if I can rewind even further back from some of the love notes that I wrote my wife, like I wanted to be married when I was 12. I was so excited to be married. I'm serious. I have wanted to be married for so long. My favorite movie in high school, I'm not kidding, was The Notebook. I love love. I could explain the rules to that game if you want me to. Um, I have always wanted to do this. And then I remember you get married and you go on your honeymoon. I remember in my honeymoon literally trying to wake up earlier than her and sneaking over to make the coffee without waking her up. And how many sugars do you want? How many creams? You know, I'll get it for you in bed. And you, you do all, you go through this and you get home. You're like, I'm going to wash the dishes and I'm going to do the laundry and I, whatever it takes, babe, I am your superhero. This is the way marriage is supposed to work. And then like three weeks in, I took a shower and I thought, what wild beast is showering in here? There's so much hair on the walls. <laughs> is the woolly mammoth living in my home? And then I found out every month I got to go into the drain with needle-nose pliers and pull out. You just go, oh my goodness, things have changed. Like it's not Song of Solomon chapter 8 every day. Can I get an amen? It's... Uh, it's not like that every single day. And I, many people have told me this, and I finally realized it to be true. Love is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a decision. Love is not a feeling. It is a decision. I, I love Morgan. We are in love. But I don't feel like loving her all the time. I don't feel like I'm in love with her. Every day. I don't. And, and it, that's when it becomes this thing where, you know what, though? I decided, I made a decision that I was going to love this woman until the day that I die, whether I feel like it or not. Single people that are out there, listen, the key to marriage is not finding the right one. It's choosing the same one over and over and over thousands and thousands of times. You get to choose them. And you start to not get thanked for it either. But you love them so much that you, and you choose to love them. It's a decision. It's not a feeling anymore. I think even last week, uh, Mark answered the question. Somebody texted in the question, you know, he does questions at the end of the service. And somebody asked, when do I, when do I know that it's time for me to get married? Listen, it is not time for you to get married if you feel like you love somebody. It is time for you to get married when you know that you will choose to love them when you don't feel like it anymore. Not if, when. You're ready to get married. You're willing to be selfless and sacrificial and choose to love that other person. Maybe you've heard it put this way before, and Morgan's going to elaborate on it a little bit more. Maybe you've heard it put this way. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And those are two really different things, and Morgan, tell us how. Yeah, so in our world today, we live in a world that is dominated by contracts. You buy a house, you have a cell phone, you rent a house, rent a car. Everything that we can think about to some degree is by contract. Uh, Joel and I just recently moved here a couple months ago, and so we are renting 
um, a town home for the year. And one of the things that they had us do upon moving in is that we had to go through our house and we had to write down on our contract everything that was damaged or wrong with our apartments before we moved in. Because in the contract, it says that once we move out, if there are any other new damages or issues that happened while we were there, we're going to pay for them. So move-in day in the midst of boxes and baby and people in and out, we kind of like took a quick survey of our home and wrote down a few things and turned it in. Uh, The frustrating thing is that now, you know, a few months in, I feel like daily I'm looking around, I'm like, yep, there's something that we didn't write down and there's something we didn't write down, things that we didn't do, but we just didn't write down. And I can anticipate that we're going to be paying for those things, right? Because that's a contract. And I understand that. And I'm not going to be upset by that because that was in the contract. I'm going to give you guys uh, some four just points to help us better understand what a contract is. So first, a contract actually deals with a limited period of time. So in our case, the time that we live in our townhome, you know, till probably next summer, that's, that's the amount of time that we've agreed to this contract. Secondly, it deals with specifications. So they asked us to specifically write down all the details of what is wrong with our townhome all of the damages and the issues. Number three, contracts typically have an if-then mentality. So if you damage this place, then you pay. And lastly, number four, it's motivated by a desire to get something. So for them, they're motivated by the desire to get our money and as much of it as they can, right? That's not wrong. That's a contract. And to be honest with you, contracts are not wrong. Our world operates well with them, and we don't need to view them as a negative thing. But the thing that is really negative and that is wrong is when we take a contractual view of life into our marriage. And we do that so very often. When we have a job description for our spouse with monthly job reviews and evaluations, when we negotiate terms with our spouse, typically terms so that It's in our favor and we get something from it. We can oftentimes keep a record of wrong. And if you fail me, then you're going to get it, right? Like whether that's like emotionally or physically or, well, not physically, that sounds bad. Um, But like, I'm going to punish you. You did something wrong. You're going to pay for it, right? In a contractual view of marriage, winning is the goal. Like, I want to win. It's about me. It's selfish in nature and not selfless. And that is not how God created marriages. God created a marriage with a covenant in mind. We're going to look just at one verse in Malachi 2.14. Feel free to turn with me or just allow me to read it for you. The background of it is that there are some men that are unhappy with their wives and are wanting to divorce their wives. And God has a specific word for them that I think also applies to us in our marriages. And he says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God set up marriage as a covenant. I shared with you guys a little bit about what a contract looks like. And how a contract can look 
when you place it in the, con- in the confines of marriage. So I wanted to share a little bit about what a covenant looks like and help us better understand what a covenant should like and re- look like in regards to marriage. First, a covenant, a covenant relationship is initiated for the benefit of the other person. And it's not about me. I like to think that this is every time we go to Panera, Joel choosing uh, to do that for the benefit of me and not for him. He would probably claim that he receives nothing from his trip to Panera and it's all about me. Um, I don't know if any other guys feel the same way, but uh, I see some hands raised, Um, right? I joke, but this is every time that Joel chooses to stay up late at night and do the dishes and clean the house after a Buckeye game like last night, right? He's not really receiving anything from that, but he's choosing to bless me and he's choosing to make it about me. Number two, a covenant has unconditional promises. There's no time frame involved in this. This is, you know, when Joel and I stood up in our vows, as many of you guys probably who are married have said, we say, for better or for worse. That's acknowledging that things might get bad. (laughs) Things might go south. Like, one of us could get sick. One of us could change and be different. Our finances could be really challenging. But we say for better or for worse, that's unconditional. It doesn't depend on what I do for Joel or what Joel does for me. We're saying, no, for better or for worse, I'm choosing you for the rest of my life. Number three, a covenant is based on steadfast love. Marriage, my love for Joel and Joel's love for me is actually supposed to mirror Christ's love for us. But Joel's going to talk about that in a little bit, so I'm not going to elaborate a ton on that. Number four, a covenant views commitments as permanent. This goes back to point number two that I just shared a little bit, but... When we were dating, engaged, and then married, we said to one another, hey, you know what? Divorce is not going to be in our vocabulary. Like, it's just not even something that we're going to talk about or say to one another. Because when we got married, we understood that this commitment was permanent. Until the Lord chooses to take one of us or the both of us, like, we're in this till the end of time. And lastly, a covenant requires confrontation and forgiveness. Just because you go into a marriage with covenant in mind doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that, like, just because I think about covenant and, like, I'm all on board of this idea of covenant that, like, things are going to, like, be (laughs) happy-go-lucky. Hey, I'm still married to a sinful person, and he's definitely still married to a sinful person. And so it's going to require confrontation. It's going to require forgiveness and lots of grace, but we're going to do that because we believe in this idea of a covenantal marriage. Let's go back to the Song of Solomon passage, and I just want to read uh, the first verse again for us. Actually, the first part of the verse. It says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. This idea of a seal, it's in Old Testament time, it was a stamp that was attached to a person either by a band or that you wore as a ring. It was pressed into clay um, and you were either pressed in a symbol or an inscription that assigned 
ownership. So this would be if I chose to have a clay ring with the initials JT on it, not Justin Timberlake, Joel Trainer. Um, and, you know, I feel like that's kind of trendy and cute. Like I got a necklace with C on it for my daughter and um, people do that kind of thing. That's not super weird to us. But I, but I want to get this idea across that this word and this language of ownership. When, when we read here, it says to set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. The author of this is basically saying, hey, listen, in marriage, there's ownership involved in this. And that's like a really harsh word and word that in some ways I like shrink back from but it's intentional and it's God's word and I can't shy away from it. In essence, when I got married to Joel, I said, you know what? You own me until God decides that one of us is going to perish or both of us. Ownership. That's what God says about a covenantal relationship. And so I want to go back to those emotions and those feelings that we had when we first read this passage those feelings that I first had when I heard that we were teaching from this and I was like, "Ah, I don't feel this right now with my husband. Like, what's wrong? Because I think that's what we can feel when we first read this, right? Of the, whoa, wait, I feel hesitant and scared and nervous about my relationship because I don't have those emotions and those feelings and those passions that this describes. But I want to challenge and encourage us that when we have a correct understanding of marriage, and love as it's meant to be, that love is a decision, not a choice, not a feeling, or it is a choice, but love is a decision, and that marriage is a covenant, and it's not a contract, then we can read this and be excited, because these things are true, right? It says, set me as a seal. Your love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love. Many sicknesses, many arguments many moves, job changes. (laughs) It's not going to quench the covenantal love when we enter marriage with that in mind. Yeah, and, and, you know, just to summarize what Morgan's sharing about covenant and contract. In a contract, it's the deal. It's if I do my part, then you'll do your part. And in a covenant relationship, it's I'm going to do my part whether you do your part or not. Totally different. It's totally, you know, rather than looking through the binoculars at your, at your spouse and the person that you're in a relationship with and trying to zoom in on the flaws and saying, hey, could you just change this, this, and this? It's, it's like looking in a mirror instead of looking through the binoculars. You know, have, you've been in, you, many of you are married or you've been in relationships. Does it ever help to, to nitpick? Does it ever help to just sit there and go, gosh, I wish they would change? It just never does to me. It just... Do yourself a favor, and I, I, try to, I try to do this sometimes. Just look in the mirror and go, you know, what do they need? What, how can I change? How can I serve and love them better? That's the way that a covenant works as opposed to a contract. Hey, let's do this. your Bibles real quick and go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you've been to a bunch of weddings recently, you probably have this memorized because you've heard it so many times. And it's probably maybe the only place you've ever heard this read. I don't know if you've ever heard it read in church. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, uh, it talks about Christ's love for the church 
and marriage relationships. So Ephesians 5, verse 25 says this. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. And then listen to this, verse 31. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So of all the things that God created, of all the things on the entire earth in the universe that God could have chosen to say, hey, this is how much I love the church. He chose marriage. He chose a marriage to be the illustration of Christ's love for the church. He could have chosen Niagara Falls, 168,000 cubic feet of water per second flowing over. What a rush. Christ's love for the church is like that. He doesn't choose that, right? The center of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. That's the way God's love for the church is, right? But God chooses something else. He chooses marriage. He chooses the relationship between a husband and a wife to be the example of Christ's love for the church. And so I look at that and I have to ask myself the question. I go, okay, so how much, want to know how much God loves the church? Look at my marriage. And I'm like, ooh. Want to know how much Jesus loves us? Look at the way I love my wife. It just, I'm not acing it. And neither are you. None of us are perfect. But, But if you look at the Bible, you look at, okay, Christ and the church, that's us, and husbands and wives, this, that is the illustration that is in the Bible, that the, the love, the, the love between a husband and a wife is the illustration of Christ's love for the church. And so if you look, if you look into it, husbands, this, this is a question for you. This is the litmus test of how you're doing in your marriage, of how you're doing in your relationships. Here's the question for you. Is your wife flourishing in your home? Is your wife flourishing in your home? Is she alive? Does she come alive when she sees you? Are you an empowerer of her? Are you a servant of her? Would you give your life up for her? Does she know for sure you would die for her? Because although I'm so convicted by this thought that my marriage is a representation of Christ's love for the church, I just feel like I'm so off. I am also so convinced that if I would be a godly man and serve her and love her and prove even that I would die for her, then I would be the living, walking illustration to people that don't know Jesus. This is how much Christ loves us. I have the chance to show that. I have a chance to show that. Um, you know, in your, in your marriage or in any relationship that you're in, really, any relationship, I think we all, if I, you know, did the thing that you do at Christian church camp where you say, 
Has anybody in here ever sinned? And everybody goes, oh, yeah. And they say, you say, look at your counselor. They've sinned too. Look at your parents. They've sinned too. I mean, I think we're all in here and we can all acknowledge that at some point you've sinned. And when you say that you've sinned, I, I think we can all kind of acknowledge that we are a needer of grace. Every one of us is a needer of grace. And if you've been in a relationship for any period of time, you know that you're a needer of grace. You need grace. And maybe in your relationship right now, you actually have been wronged. Someone wronged you. You're right, and they're wrong. And, and they need to apologize. But ra- rather than just focusing on so much on what other people need to change, let me just ask you this question. In your relationships, are you a gracious person? We're all needers of grace, but I'm asking you, are you a giver of grace? Are you so forgiving and so gracious that no matter what, you would just continue to extend grace upon grace upon grace. Because if there's one word, there's many words that describe Christ's love for us. So many of them, but there's one that's for sure. And it's that it's never ending. No matter how fast I try to run in the opposite direction of Jesus, no matter how fast I go, the grace never runs out. And that's what I'm supposed to model in my marriage, that no matter how much Morgan does things that I don't like or I wish she would change or whatever. It doesn't matter. My role in this is to, rather than look in the binoculars, is to look in the mirror and go, how can I love her? How can I show grace? How can I be the illustration of Christ's love for the church? How can I model it? It's not about her. It's about me. It's not about what I want. It's about what she wants. I'm going to kind of close with Uh, one thought, and if I'm totally honest with you, I am wrestling with this in my heart. I've studied some of this recently, and I am just so, I'm just wrestling with it, but I know it's biblical, and I think it's hard to say, and it might be hard to hear, but I know it's true. I do know it's true. But I just need to confess that I'm wrestling even in my own heart with this, what I'm about to say. You know, I'm a huge Cleveland Indians fan. Like, huge, okay? I mean, I remember Carlos Baerga and Albert Bell and the Jake, amen? We're in the World Series. I remember the 95 World Series when David Justice hit a home run at game six to beat us 1-0. I remember the 11th inning when Edgar Renteria hit a single up the middle to, in the 11th inning to lose to the Marlins. I remember those things. And right now in 2016, 21 years later or so, We're back in the World Series. But if I look at the Cleveland Indians team, I don't see superstars. I don't see the greatest players in the sport. Those guys are on other teams. We've got a couple all-stars, but I think we would all say, I don't know that we've got a guy that's really like one of the greatest players in baseball right now. But I look at their team and I think, if there's one word, man, they've got momentum. They are united They are fighting for something, and they're good. They're in the World Series, despite the fact that they're not the greatest players in baseball. And it's because they are on a mission. They are on a mission to win the World Series. They didn't go on a one-night getaway and talk about their feelings. They didn't go and sit over coffee and say, oh, this is how I should change and you should change. The reason they're so good is because they are on a mission together period. And that's what makes them great. 
And if you're anything like me, as you, as you talk about marriage, or you study, maybe there's some people in here, you're encouraged today. You're thrilled. This has kind of been an affirmation of the way that you're going in your marriages, in your relationships. But maybe you're like me and you're looking at this going, gosh, my, I'm the representation of Christ to the church. I'm, the, I'm supposed to love my spouse like that? And you're going, gosh, I just want to be, I want to be better. We all go through seasons where we want to change our habits and spend more time and read the five love languages again and figure out how to be a better spouse. We all go through that. But here's the deal. I am convinced, based on the Bible, I am convinced that the way to have the godliest relationships, the way to have the godliest marriage is quit focusing on your marriage and start focusing on the mission. Focus on the mission. Jesus rose from the dead to tell us to make disciples. He he rose from the dead to say, go build the church. Go love people. That's the mission. And I, I just, you know, you get married and, you, you know, you, the first year people are like, oh, you guys, you just got to spend, you know, one year for sure, just like you guys. Just get settled, just you two, leave, cleave, you guys. And then, oh, then you have a kid. It's like, oh, those first few years, they're really, really important to nourish them and nurture them into your family. Just protect this. And then all of a sudden your kids are older and, you know, until they're 18, we got to protect family. You know, this is like the most, this is the priority, you know, guard them and protect them. And based on what I read, I think that's a way to destroy your marriages. I think that that's a horrible example to your kids, that family and marriages should be the priority and we can just serve God and be on mission when it's more convenient. I mean, I just talked to somebody this week. I just talked to him about being on mission, about serving the church, and, and I just got like, well, you know what? We've got a lot of decisions to make right now, and um, we're just trying to get settled first. And I'm going, what, what decision could possibly be more important than serving Jesus and being on mission for him and making disciples? What could possibly be more important than that? It, it, we, we, and then we go, oh, you know what? We've got to get it together first. We've got to get our marriage together. We've got to spend time, get our marriage together first, and then we'll start serving. That's like saying, I want to get in shape so that I can go jogging. You get in shape by jogging. Your marriages, your relationships will come together when you're on mission with one another. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that relationships and family is not important. I, I just feel this tension even in my own voice as I say it. But I'm just going, do I want people to look at the trainer family and say, wow, they've got a great family? Or do I want them to say, wow, they are on mission? They will not stop loving people. They are just on fire for Jesus. And I'm not saying sacrifice your relationships for the mission. What I'm saying is that I think if you both decide, hey, I'm going to be full on mission, I think the byproduct is a godly, healthy marriage. Where you just end up being more selfless and more kind and more gracious with one another. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the mission that you've sent us on. And God, thank you for marriage. 
and family, I am convinced it's the greatest thing that you created. It is so good to be in relationship with one another, Father. So thank you for creating that. But let us not make that the priority. Let's make it a priority. Help us to make it a priority, but not the priority. Father, would you help us to be on mission for you? And I believe, God, that our marriages and our relationships will be so rich and deep because of that. And uh, God, I just pray if there's anything that we set up here this morning that isn't of you, that's not in your word, that you would just cast it aside and help it to be so easily forgotten. But God, I pray that the word of God would take root in the hearts of these people, even in my own heart. And maybe today we'd have even some conversations that would spur us on to love one another like you love the church so that we could tell the whole world how much you love us. In Jesus' name.